the reading this morning is taken from 1 Samuel 8. In fact, it is all of 1 Samuel 8. And is found on page 277 of our church Bible. Israel asks for a king. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah. And they served at Beersheba, but his sons didn't follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you're old and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said, give us a son to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord and the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king, as they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, this is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and others to plough his ground and reap his harvest and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and your vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. Your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and the donkeys he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks, and you yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we shall be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel heard all that the people had said, he repeated it before the Lord. And the Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. Then Samuel said to the Israelites, everyone go back to your own town. This is the word of the Lord. By the way, can I just um, say well done to the, um, those of you uh, that are parents of toddlers. I've noticed, um, I've noticed a skill for, that you parents of toddlers have. I've noticed several people doing this this morning. And that's the sort of like, you see your child about to run full speed recklessly, 
and you go in like two big steps from zero to 60 and scoop them up. And well done. Um, yeah, anyways, skills. Um, can, can I share you something? By the way, giving people thankful, like positive words can be really impactful. Something that's been sitting with me for a few days is just a bit of fun. Um, Alexa will have heard this and the sound guys, but there you go. Um, the, um, basically, I was in Bath the other day and this crazy guy, well, he was either crazy or drunk or both, okay, um, came up to me and he said to me, like he'd been mumbling and whatever like that, but then very intelligibly he said to me, you're the chief, you're the chief, with a beard like that, you're the chief. <laughs> it's a lovely compliment. I've, and then he went back to mumbling. <laughs> Um, anyways, the sound guys have found it funny, to, the tech guys, to call me chief. That's not, I'm not, <laughs> not doing that. Yeah. <laughs> Please. <laughs> um, anyways, let me pray as we get into our text this morning. Father, we ask uh, that as we think about the, the wayward hearts of the Israelites, we pray that as we come to this text, that you would help us to come with open hearts. That you'd help us uh, to to be open and willing to whatever you want to do. I pray that by your spirit even, that you might reveal things to us that we might not even want to see. But we do this all to honor you and to know you more in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let me start by taking you into the situation that we have here in chapter 8 and giving you kind of a big picture of what's going on here for, for first. The, the people of Israel want a monarchy, a king, instead of a theocracy or essentially God ruling and leading the nation. And from our perspective, we might think that a king's a good idea, right? Like, um, you know, this wasn't, however, by the way, I had to look this up. This wasn't, however, a choice to be like us. They weren't choosing to have a parliamentary democracy with a constitutional monarch. Um, Kings in the ancient world had nearly limitless power and authority. They wanted a king like the other nations around them, but they had an option that wasn't available to the other nations around them in which God was the one leading them. And that's the kind of something that's really sad about what's happening in this passage. And so much of our chapter really is given over to how blatantly daft their request is. And so let me take us, first of all, just into the middle of this passage, sort of verses 9 to 18. In verses 9 and 11, it says that, that they will find that a king will claim things as his rights. Essentially, they're creating a position with significant rights attached to it. And if you have your own Bible, like a word that you could underline in the middle of our chapter is the word take, because you'll find it comes up a lot. So check this out. He will take your sons, verse 11, your daughters, verse 13. He will take the best of your fields, verse 14. He will take a tenth of your grain, verse 15. Your servants, verse 16. A tenth of your flocks, verse 17. Like take, 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 take. And then it says that in verse 18, that when they realize the cost of all of this, they will cry out for help from God and he will not listen. And if we look forward... In scripture, we can see this exact thing happening. So in, in 1 Samuel 14, verse 52, it says, Whenever Saul saw a mighty or brave man, he took him into his service. 
In other words, you don't want to look mighty or brave in front of the king. <laughs> uh, 2 Samuel verse 15, chapter 15, verse 1 says, Absalom provided himself with a chariot and horses and with 50 men to run ahead of him. Like, can you imagine having your own child, your son, taken from you to run in front of the king's chariot as fodder? Or check this out. This is very striking. First Kings chapter 12, verse 13 and 14. The king, Rehob, this is Rehoboam, answered the people harshly, rejecting the advice given him by the elders. He followed the advice of the young men and said, catch this, my father made your yoke heavy. I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. Contrast that a king that demands so much with what they had with a the theocracy. With Now, it, there was leadership, but it was different. It was humble leadership. It was where the leader, like Samuel, was, was, would hear from God and would share that with the people. And that's how they knew what they should do and the direction they should go. And Samuel, at the end of his life, I mean, contrast this. Just striking. 1 Samuel 12, here's what he says. Here I stand, testify against me in the presence of the Lord and his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Whose donkey have I taken? Whom have I cheated? Whom have I oppressed? From whose hand have I accepted a bribe to make me shut my eyes? If I have done any of these things, I will make it right. Like, striking contrast here. A king, without any doubt here, is a bad idea. And what makes it so much worse is that it's in this, Israel is turning from what they were supposed to be. Israel was supposed to be a nation that represented God. God led them. God fought for them in battle. The nations of the world would know they were different and honor God because of it. Right? Like as a theocracy, it's low cost, super high reward. Right, comes, goes right to the purpose of what it meant for Israel to be a nation to begin with, that the world might know God and honor him. Why would you settle for something less? Why would they even desire a king? Now let me pause for a moment and just think about ourselves. I think there are loads of ways where what we can see in the wayward hearts of the Israelites, actually we can see in our own hearts as well. There's lots of points, I think, points of connection. Often we fall to living less of the life that God's called us to than we should. Often we're influenced in ways that we shouldn't be influenced. Our affections, I like the word affections, it's about our desires. Our affections often are wrongly ordered. We desire the wrong things. And so what I'd encourage you to do is, as we look at the wayward hearts of the Israelites, do it with looking at your own heart. Right? Well, first, check this out. Um, they have a situation in front of them, and this is a way forward. They don't know a better way to handle the situation. Okay? So the, the issue that we get in our passage, if you look at the beginning of the chapter, in verse 1, we see that Samuel appoints his sons as leaders. And in verse 3, we get this, that they did not follow his ways, that they turned after dishonest gain, etc. Notice how complicated this problem is. Samuel, in appointing his sons, we can 
possibly assume that he's got a blind spot for his sons. Like, we're not told that um, for certain, but we know that Samuel isn't addressing the problem that there is here. Joel and Abijah aren't fit for this role. They aren't the godly leaders that a, that a theocracy requires. The damage they could cause is massive. And worse, there's history to this, right? Do you remember with Eli and his sons? And so we have, if we put this together, we have a hard situation of great importance with painful history. Our judgment is often clouded by many of the same sort of things that they're dealing with here. Competing voices can make it hard to sift what's really important. Past failure can skew our discernment. And sometimes we choose a quick solution instead of the right solution, right? Now, um, let me just do something that's a bit of fun. And I'll, I'll just get you in a moment to share something with someone near you. But you'll see, um, I've said before that something I enjoy, just kind of like fun reading, is reading stuff in behavioral economics, okay? Um, because they do these like, they do these experiments to show how situational our judgment can be, okay? And Richard Thaler, in his book, Misbehaving, um, shares something that he would use sometimes with, in a kind of classroom setting. And let me do it, let me do this with you for a second, okay? All right? So I'll give you a situation, and then you just respond to someone next to you. Ready? Okay, here we go. Uh, suppose, now this, by the way, this sounds really dark, and, and, but you'll see. It's fine. Okay. Um, suppose by, by coming to church this morning, I'm adjusting what he's done, but you know. Um, suppose by coming to church this morning, you've exposed yourself to a rare fatal disease. Um, by contracting, if you contract this disease, you'll die a quick and painless death sometime next week. Okay? And the chance that you'll get the disease is one in a thousand. Now, as it turns out, we have a single dose of antidote that will go to the highest bidder. What would you be willing to pay for the antidote? Okay? So share it with somebody near you. What would you be willing to pay for that antidote? Go for it. Okay, let me, I'll pull us back together now. Okay. Now, let me give you, let me give you one other situation. You'll notice some similarities, but check this out. Okay, another situation. I'll get you to respond again. One second. Researchers at the university are doing some research on that same rare disease. They need volunteers who are willing to simply walk into a room for five minutes and then possibly expose themselves to the same illness, again with a one in 1,000 risk of getting the disease and dying a quick and painless death next week. No antidote will be available. What is the least amount of money that you would be willing to be paid to be part of their study? Share that with somebody next to you, go for it.
Okay. Now, now I, I wish I could hear lots of people's responses. It'd be interesting, right? The, um, what's really interesting, like what um, Richard Thaler found is that from loads of times of doing this in classroom settings, he typically found answers along these sorts of lines. I'm adjusting for English, whatever. But that essentially with, with situation A for the antidote, that people wouldn't pay more than kind of 2,000 pounds, okay? But in version B, to be part of the study, that people would often want something like nothing less than 500,000 pounds to be part of the study, okay? Massive difference. What's really interesting is if you focus on what really matters in each of these situations, what really matters, what's the value of your life, right? Situation A, you buy that antidote, you live. Situation B, the only way you live is if you just don't participate at all, right? The amount that you should be willing to pay in situation A is way more. But people typically get it backwards. And the reason is because there's all these different competing. In one, you're paying versus getting paid. Um, there's, you know, there's all these, in, in the first one, you've, you've, got, you've, you've got it. It wasn't anyone's fault. The second one, you'd be choosing to be part of a study. Like, there's lots of competing things, but the core of what really matters is what's your life worth? Now, here's the thing. Sometimes when we face situations that are complex, there's so many different things going on that it's hard to have clear discernment in the middle of that moment. Um, and when those times come, what we should definitely do is bring everything to God, right? Now, what I want you to see here is something that's really sad about what happens with Israel. Throughout this passage, Samuel goes to God, the people of Israel do not. I think because they know that if they go to God, he's going to say not to have a king, right? Um, there's something, their hearts are hard. There's something, they, they, don't, they don't bring this to God, even with it being so complicated. Now, there's something about human pride and ego in the middle of that that I think we can all succumb to. Um, actually, I wasn't going to share this, but I will just real quick, just kind of something kind of fun um, or interesting. I find that sometimes when you lose something, it's humbling to pray, God, help me find it. And what can happen is sometimes I realize I'm not praying, God, help me find it because I'm going to find it on my own. Do you know what I mean? Like, there's something that's, why? Why wouldn't we always, in whatever situation, have the humility to say, God, help me? Um, anyways, the thing I was thinking of was shortly after I started here, we had a hog roast. Some people will remember that. And the, um, we had a big packet of money left over from the hog, hog roast that someone brought over to the church rooms and... It couldn't get banked until the next day because it was a Sunday. And I didn't know where to put an envelope of money, of like a lot of money, right? And so what I did real quick, well, point being is the envelope of money was missing for weeks. And I was like, couldn't remember what the heck had happened with the pack because there were so many things going on at the time, right? And Claire was in the office, she's not here now, but Claire was in the office and she said, she said something like, have you prayed about it? And I said, 
and I just started praying out loud. I was like, God, we ask that you would help us find what's happened with the envelope. Like I had completely forgotten what had happened, right? And just as I was saying, amen, I literally put my hand down into my file drawers without completely knowing what I was doing, pushed further, and it was just like instinct, and I went down to the bottom of the drawer and pulled out the envelope and was baffled and then went, did I do that? Oh yeah, I think, I think I thought the safest place was the bottom of the drawer underneath all the folders where no one would ever go, right? Um, but there's something about that humility, about going, God, whatever I face, I can, I can use your help, right? Okay, second thing I want you to see from what happens here with the Israelites is a contrast between worldly wisdom and God's wisdom, which is important for us. And so check this out in verse five, little phrase that you get at the end of verse five, appoint a king to lead us, catch this, such as all the other nations have. Like they weren't supposed to be like the other nations. Verse 20, then we will be like all the other nations. A king makes worldly sense. God as ruler makes supernatural sense. This is like sometimes, sometimes people think, oh, well, it's better, for example, to live together before you get married, right? So some people, sometimes people try the relationship out, which I don't think is what God wants, by the way, what we find in Scripture. It makes worldly sense, but it also is more likely to end in divorce. Do you see what I mean? Like there's a kind of a contrast sometimes between what makes, what's worldly wise and what is God's wisdom. And so check this out. In the previous chapter, in 1 Samuel 7, what we find is that God fought for them and they had this decisive victory that was referred to earlier. A victory that didn't make worldly sense. A victory so decisive that it led to a time of peace. They've had a peace now for 20 or 25 years up to this point. And now it seems that they've forgotten. And they want to be like all the other nations. You see, sometimes we fall to thinking just like everyone around us. When we're called to heed godly wisdom and live differently in this world. Um, when I was a youth pastor, every now and then I would have a, a parent that would come to me. It was a large youth ministry, and so I had this experience multiple times where a parent would come to me and they would say, your youth ministry has been fantastic for my teenager, but, um, and we want to thank you so much. It's really helped their faith. And um, anyways, just wanted to, to let you know that now my son or daughter, they're going to be heading off to boarding school, so they won't be part of it anymore. Okay. Now, the, um, I, would, I always ask them a question, and I think almost every time, possibly, possibly every time, the question, well, the response would be the same. The question I would ask is, how would the school be for them spiritually? And almost always, the parent hadn't even considered it. Now, do you see what's, what's going on here? Like, they would carefully consider the cost of the place, the location, the academics, the class size, the statistical probability of getting them into Oxford or Cambridge, right? But they wouldn't think about the spiritual health of their child. What really matters? 
Like, of course, a lot of those things matter, and they're good things. But what really, what's most important? And see, what we see, what I, what I, what I see in that is for, all of, for lots of us in lots of different ways, we buy into the values of our culture when we're called to live different by godly wisdom. Um, and by the way, every now and then, we get chances to live this out in a way that shocks the world. And it's beautiful when that happens. And how we use our time or our money or um, one example I came across recently is I won't share the whole story because it's actually kind of horrific. But it was in 2006 when a man went into a school, shot several children, and then turned the gun on himself. Several of the children were part of the Amish community. And what, they, what happened was absolutely beautiful because what, what the Amish did is they, they turned up to his funeral. Like, can you imagine? Can you imagine? The, like, he, he had a wife and kids. Can you imagine how it would have devastated his family? The way, and for these Amish people who had had their own children killed, they went to his funeral as, a, as an act of forgiveness. Imagine how baffling that is for the world around us. As Christians, we're meant to live differently in this world. And so it's important, important that we do, and yet difficult for us. And the final thing I want you to see in this text that's sad, that connects with the rest of it, is that they, the people of Israel did not have what I would call a teachable heart. It says, actually, it says, after, after Samuel gives this great speech, <laughs> we get to verse 19, and it says this, but the people refused to listen to Samuel. They refused to listen. We find in verse 7 that they've rejected God. We find in verse 22 that God gives them over to what they want. But the thing I want you to see is that they refused to listen. The scary thing is, what if there are parts of life where God is speaking, but we refuse to listen? Right? You see, the, my hope would be for us that we would be a people that are always able to listen, regardless of what God wants to say. That we're humble, that we're teachable. Uh, last, last week, um, someone, gave me, someone showed me a card, and I really liked it. And then they, so they gave it to me. And it's just a little postcard. And it was something that a child had drawn and, they, and then they, some, it got made into a postcard. And in the drawing, what you've got is you've got one person who's clearly like wrapped up with what, what looks like, is probably like Christmas lights. They're completely wrapped up in, in Christmas lights. And another person is sort of helping take the lights off of the person. And the the person says in a speech bubble, I'm unraveling you. And then the, the child wrote underneath it, God is unraveling me. And there's something really beautiful about the heart attitude there that I'd want for all of us. God is unraveling me. Like, that we should have when times are difficult, but also when they're good. It's similar to... I remember someone that I saw, their faith was just rocketing, and her prayer again and again was, God, break me, break me, break me. Right? There's this heart attitude that says, God, whatever you want from me, I'm yours. 
Let's pray. Father, give us insight into our own hearts. Help us to see anything that you want us to see. Help us to be a people that are humble and teachable, a people that are willing, that bring everything to you. Help us to be a people that live for you in a world that can be confusing and complicated. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.